0: the question a podcast that exists at the intersection of pop culture and academia we sit down and talk about our favorite stuff through the lenses of what we do and who we are from pannoni honors college drexel university dr melinda lewis here i'm
1: your host Hey, everybody. I'm here with two people representing the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University. First, Roland Wall, the Executive Director of the Patrick Center for Environmental Research. Hey, Roland.
2: Hey, Lilith. Thanks for having us here today.
1: Of course. And Rick McCourt, Professor in the Department of Biodiversity, Earth, and Environmental Science, and Curator of Botany and Director of the Center for Systematic Biology at the Academy of Natural Sciences.
3: Hi, Melissa. Nice to be here.
1: Of course. Thank you for being here. And we're going to talk about the environment and science writing and working across silos. I mean, the real question that I always start with is like, when was the moment where you realized that the thing you're doing now was what you really enjoyed doing or that spark moment of whether it was like as a little kid or undergrad where you're like, I want to pursue this type of work.
3: I knew from early on that I wanted to do something with aquatic biology. I didn't call it that. You know, I just like flipper on television. (laughs) So I remember writing a paper in sixth grade where I drew this beautiful picture of a dolphin and I wrote a whole page on it. And I thought, that's what I want to do. They call him Flipper, Flipper, faster than lightning. And then I grew up and figured out that Flipper had retired, and jobs with marine mammals were a little hard unless you wanted to work at SeaWorld. Flipper lives in a world full of wonder, lying there under, under
2: the sea.
3: So. I, I just kind of kept working on things in the ocean and then later on in fresh water. And so it kind of grew on me in different ways. And I figured out also that in addition to loving the natural world, I liked people who also love the natural world. So I really liked the, the group of people I was working with and the community of, of scholars uh, into it. And my focus has changed a lot, but we'll talk about that later. So I was lucky enough to sort of maintain that interest
1: I also feel like we could do a whole episode about Flipper being a gateway towards (laughs) marine biology. I feel like a lot of stories start with gateway
2: organism. Yeah, let's not forget the work of Jacques Cousteau is bringing people to.
1: Absolutely.
3: Actually, he was pretty instrumental. Back, yeah, I grew up when uh, there were what three television stations plus PBS in my state, in my hometown, and Jacques Cousteau was on TV, and he was uh, he was a magical figure. Actually, I feel responsible. I feel. Guilty as everybody else, as you should, that uh, we are
0: uh, drawing blank checks on future generations. We
2: don't pay, they are going to pay.
1: And then, Roland, what about you?
2: My story is a little more complicated. I'm not a sort of traditional scientist. Uh, not to say that Rick is traditional, but I think he's probably followed a little more direct career path. This is actually a second career for me. I worked. For about 15 years in uh, social services, I was a psychiatric social worker and an administrator for a nonprofit social service agency. So that that was all kind of going on with me back in the 80s and 90s, early 90s. I had always been interested in the outdoors. I was a birder, I was a boater. I had done part of a biology degree. I was kind of drifting through the years in some ways, but I'd always been interested in the in the environment, and I'd, I'd done some studies in environmental policy when I was in grad school the first time. And so I'd been sort of drawn. More towards kind of outdoor activities, but it's it's interesting because I found this this morning. This is the book Extinction by Paul Ehrlich. Paul and Anne Ehrlich, his wife. Paul was a um, pretty well known in the '70s. He wrote a book called The Population Bomb. It was was some controversial, but um, and had some some issues around predictions. But Professor Ehrlich is a a very brilliant scientist. He's written extensively on on environmental work. It is the silent spring of the 80s. So in the late 80s, I'm just sitting in my backyard reading this book. And it just all sort of came together for me reading this, which is really a a call to action around uh, species extinction, but also around the environment generally, including, including climate change. And it really, you know, I kind of have a very clear memory of those months thinking uh, where the weeks were that I was reading that book, thinking uh, this is what I want to do. I got to do something in this field. About 20 years after I read this book, uh, Professor Ehrlich signed it for me. (laughs) because <laughs> I was hosting him here. I had a couple of opportunities actually to spend some time with him and, and, and discuss his influence on me. So that was an interesting point in my life.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, to be able to meet somebody who has had such a direct influence is always really exciting. And And I think it gets me to also thinking about the significance of popular writing and how we talk about complex issues to a wide audience. Like how do we kind of communicate science those who are unaware or not as as knee deep. And I'm wondering, what are some texts that you have come across that you think do a good job of maintaining that balance between articulating issues and relaying those to the public?
3: Oh, that's interesting. I said I didn't have any major career changes. Actually, I've changed careers about three times, but they've always kind of pivoted in a funny way that let me keep doing fun stuff. And when I was in grad school, I, I got a fellowship from AAAS Westinghouse I think was the co-sponsor for Mass Media Fellowship and growing up in Tucson Arizona this was before the days when the New York Times could be delivered on your doorstep the only real good national news I got was national public radio and I had started listening to this weird show all things considered in morning edition I was kind of hooked on it and I thought they were really fun And this fellowship allowed me to work for WGBH in Boston, which produced all these great documentaries and stuff. And I worked in the news department because they had a daily news show. And and then I started freelancing for National Public Radio itself. And this is like a dream come true. I I didn't think at the time, gee, you could do this as a full-time job. So I never did. (laughs) I wish I had. But um, I really grew up as an adult listening to the media to people like Ira Flato. But the NPR science Reporters were really good at communicating pretty good complex issues in more than 30 second sound bites because they had two and a half, three, four, five minutes to do it. So on radio, they were really interesting voices and they still are. There's still really good people doing that. Nowadays, of course, you can do podcasts like this, right? You don't have to have a network supporting you. At the time, I couldn't do a radio story on astronomy for three minutes and put it on the web. There was no web, but nowadays you can. That's
1: one small step for man.
2: One for mankind. I mean, clearly there's some classics like out of Leopold's Sand County Almanac, which many people in my field will say that was the thing that they read that, that pushed them along. That was written in the in the 40s, but was, I think, Rick, I know, I'm sure you're familiar with it. it was well ahead of its time in terms of understanding on conservation and affecting people's thoughts. I think in terms of more up-to-date stuff, the Science Times had a big effect on me because it was a range of science that was in front of you in digestible bites that was, I think, well-written and uh, written by folks who have good science background. I spent some time science writing myself, as I said, when I first started here in the 90s, and it's an exercise in saying enough but not too much. And I found the stronger my science competencies became kind of the worst sum of my writing got for for conveying it because I started writing more formal science stuff you start putting more in the sentence you want to make sure that Rick I don't know if you've you've had this experience as well so
3: no that's true and I I think uh, scientists actually suffer from this because you're not really trained in writing it's more it's changing nowadays actually there's more training in writing and speaking and talking and being interviewed and so forth like that but it's not necessarily true and in science it's hard to say something that's absolutely definitive so you always have to qualify it but I mean Aldo Leopold was almost a poet I think you know and he, he was an incredible writer. Some other writers that I think are really interesting I, Aldo's not a lot around anymore but um we'll get to Ruth Patrick who's part of the academy
2: we can we can tell you stories about her at some point
3: yeah but um, one guy I really like a lot is David Quamman. David writes about natural history, and he actually dives into the basic literature of biogeography, ecology, evolution, and, ju- and it pops out in a really interesting conversational way. So he, he used to write essays for an outside magazine. Now he writes books he has one that just came out about the coronavirus. But he's written about animals that are threats to humans, called Monster God, about tigers and lions and things, sort of the animals on Earth that could actually eat us if they wanted to, and how they played a role in mythology and and everything else, and also about evolution itself. So he manages to make that really fascinating, and I really admire him. He's, He's done some really good work.
2: Well, science has to deal with uncertainty, and scientists have to often qualify everything because everything has a certain level of uncertainty to it, and a lot of science is really uncertainty management. When we get into particularly some of the issues around the environment, which I I know is one of the things we're going to talk about, when we're trying to say, you know, we're trying to apply science into the uh, environmental dialogue, the the sort of public dialogue, it can get lost pretty quickly as as a tool if it is communicated in a way that just puts too much uncertainty into the conversation. And that's a real balance, you know, how do we actually make sure we're being scientifically accurate and credible in what we say, but at the same time not so completely lose the path of the argument that it's not going to do any good in any way.
1: Yeah. And I feel like that's a great segue into the next line of thinking, which was my my sense of at least popular culture discourse is not very nuanced and that it ranges from like it's all terrible. And it's all going to, and we're all going to be underwater.
0: It's a chilling view of a vital piece of history, Independence Hall in Philadelphia, in a future overtaken by too much water.
1: Versus everything is fine. Stop worrying about it. We've had these conversations forever. And it's really hard to know where in the balance we are. How? you kind of, particularly in your positions at the academy and at the university, try to cut through all of this noise?
3: It's pretty difficult. I think Roland, working at the Patrick Center for Environmental Research, which is kind of our uh, ecology side of the house, if you want to call it that. I'm more on that sort of evolution, natural history, but they come together in an interesting way. I think we can, we'll talk about that. But it's interesting when I started to get into this, I like Flipper, right? I mentioned him, be- him before. In my generation, you could be kind of geek out and just say, if I could only get to some part of the natural world, that's undisturbed, I could really figure out what's going on. And over the past couple of decades, it's been the case that there is no such place on the planet anymore. There's no part that's unaffected by us. There's no part that is a little bit under, under or a lot under threat. And so you're dragged, maybe kicking and screaming to some extent into the side of how to save this, which is how Roland got in this talking and you know, reading Paul Ehrlich's stuff about extinction. Of course, Paul Ehrlich was a basic biologist, ecologist before he became a best-selling author and figured out, hey, we're, we're all in at risk here.
2: And he was a volunteer at the academy in the 1950s, by the way.
3: Oh, was, really? He was. Okay. That well, was how I actually made the connection. I worked for Ruth. Yeah, Ruth was he did. He
2: did. I think. <laughs> yeah,
3: right. <laughs> Which is pretty pretty amazing. A lot of people, famous people, have gone through the academy in one way or another. But I actually go between those two extremes you were talking about, Melinda. So I ca- occasionally I get up and read the paper, and I'll go, "It's kind of game over. I might as well just enjoy the." The fall weather, while I can, because it's not going to last much longer. To other times when, like this week, this guy's writing a an article in the in the Sunday magazine in the New York Times saying it's not quite as bad as it used to be. I used to think there'd be hurricanes, floods, war, and famine. Now I think just maybe hurricanes and floods, <laughs> and I don't know if that's going to be true or not. But it was an interesting almost quasi-optimistic take on things. And when I'm talking to students, I figure I can't just say we're all doomed, now what? Which is the title of an interesting book, actually. (laughs) You have to think, what can you do? I just read a book called Hurricane Lizards and Plastic Squid by a guy named Thor Hansen. He talked to Gordon Oriens, who was a longtime ecologist at the University of Washington. He said, well, what can we do about climate change and thinking about it? And his response was, everything you can which was an interesting take on it. So it's like, well, don't give up. Do everything you can and just and don't despair that and just because you t- used 5% less plastic bags this year, well, that's that's better than nothing. And then there are other things you can do in other spheres that might have an even bigger effect. But, you know, do what you can and uh, maintain some sort of feeling that no matter how bad it could be, it could be not as bad if I do something to counteract it.
1: We will not let you get away with this right here right now is where we draw the line the world is waking up and change is coming whether you like it or not thank you
2: just to give you a little background the the patrick center which was founded by dr ruth patrick who we've, we've mentioned a couple times who was a bit of a force of nature in the 20th century really one of the pioneers of aquatic ecology as a science and the idea of looking at human impacts on aquatic systems. And, and so that's really what we do. We actually do a lot of externally focused work on problems, on, on trying to look at how science can be applied to, to human impact. We, we do other somewhat more basic science as well, of course, but a lot of our work is really focused on what people need to know to try to make things better particularly on aquatic systems, streams and rivers. That was really where, where Dr. Patrick got started. So I think there's a there's a problem in the U.S. sometimes that we tend to look at environmental action through the consumer lens. Gee, if we just bought less of this or, or did that or the other, that's my bit for the environment. I think the environment, the way it is, it's a collective entity and we all have to be working together on it. So while it's fine to you know, change your light bulbs and recycle your trash and all those things are good. If you really want to think about what you can do effectively around the environment, it's really thinking more about institutional, community, collective kind of actions, starting with voting. I mean, I, I, I won't endorse one way or the other, but certainly if you're interested in the environment, be interested in what your candidates are saying. But even if it's something as small as being part of a community garden or being part of your local watershed protection association, whatever it may be, the environment, even though we think about it on a global level, we think about these big problems on a global level, it really presents locally for the most part. And people's interactions with the environment are for the most part local. And so the place you start thinking about where you can have your actions is is local. And that's not that's not anything original. I mean think globally, act locally has been on bumper stickers since I was a child. But that would be my thought if people are looking for ways to impact things.
1: your mom i have a question about that podcast you do are you on the instagram or the twitter or the facebook you know like if i have an idea for a podcast how do i get in touch with you love you bye
0: sup mom uh yeah so you can find us on all those things actually twitter instagram facebook just go to pop quest pod on any one of those and follow if you want to send us ideas, you can either go over to our website and leave us a message at PopQ Podcast, or you can get us directly at popq at drexel.edu. You can actually find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, I can help set it up when I get home, but then you have to promise me to rate and review. All right. Love you. Bye. 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 Hot
1: town, summer in the city, back of my neck. A shadow in the city all around people looking half dead, on the sidewalk than a How is climate change specifically affecting Philadelphia and, and the region? Are there certain issues that make Philadelphia particularly vulnerable? We've gotten a lot more involved looking at climate change
2: lately in the last five or 10 years. In the past, climate change was sort of looked at through the lens of climate modelers and people who were climate scientists. In a sense, we're all climate scientists right now. And particularly in ecology, we're kind of the two master variables are our precipitation and temperature. Clearly, those are things that are going to change over time. So we've spent a lot of time thinking about climate and what it means there's certainly ways that that philadelphia is vulnerable it's you know it sits on a river and so it's going to be affected by by flooding issues excuse were needed to save people from
3: the floods janae norman is on the scene in philadelphia good morning janae
0: george good morning i would never be able to safely stand here on the vine street expressway a major thoroughfare through philadelphia but it is completely flooded this morning still Crews hauled in the pumps yesterday. They tell us that they have been working through the night, pumping thousands of gallons of water a minute. They're making some progress. The water is beginning to recede, but it is still just a massive mess here from that record rise and and the rainfall yesterday. The Schuylkill River here rising about 10 feet in just over 12 hours, overflowing its banks, flooding streets, swamping cars, and prompting water rescues. The National Guard using. High- One of the interesting
2: things with Philadelphia, and it's not unique. To- of Philadelphia, but it is unique to large cities in a way. And it, it we can walk from this over to the issue of, of equity and environmental justice. Cities get hotter than the surrounding areas. It's called the urban heat island effect. It's been known for for many years, even before climate change became an issue. We knew that because of pavement, because of the loss of trees, because of machinery operating and traffic, cities are just hotter, and and, and they're hotter particularly at night than than the surrounding countryside, which can be a problem within cities, though some parts get much hotter than others. And if you look at times of heat emergencies, some communities are going to be much more affected than others. And not surprisingly, those tend to be poor communities, often communities of color, that are going to get more impact. And that's, again, due to a lot of issues, you know, patterns of development, redlining of mortgages, all all the historical issues of segregation, all the development plans where, where some areas just have a lot more pavement, a lot less trees.
1: An update now on your NBC10 First Alert weather. Get ready for another frosty night in many neighborhoods.
3: And despite these colder temperatures, the weather is overall much warmer. Steve's here to explain what we're talking about. You know about. how yeah. time can be tricky. Over the years, that's things change. Right. Yep. And that's exactly what's happened with the climate. So you think of climate change and you think, oh, everything's down the road. That's when we're in trouble. But I'm here to tell you it's already happening and we have the stats to prove it. That's what we do in science. We look at numbers and trends and that's what I'm here to show you. So what's going on here? Well, partially climate change, you have that urban heat island effect. All the buildings, the streets, uh, keeping everything warm. And in this kind of weather, yeah, you can get bit by mosquitoes even into November. So, changing climate, of course, is happening in Philadelphia, but we have to think of this at a global scale because that's what's... called. Causing-
2: and so that's a big issue in, in Philly, and the city has taken actions on it because if you look at the, what's called the heat vulnerability map of the city of Philadelphia, certain areas just pop out. And so trying to mitigate or figure out ways to support and adapt there are important. That's an issue in almost all cities.
3: Yeah. And the, uh, the the science side of the academy has a couple of arms, so to speak, or sometimes when we talk about them as silos, you know, when when we have, uh, we feel a, a negative point of view. But well, I, look, I, Rick, we're both here together. We're, we're both here. No, no. Roland and I are drilling <laughs> holes in those silos. Because actually, the way to look at the climate issue is that there's a past, present, and future, right? And, and we're all concerned about all of them. In a way, the I'm in the side of the academy where we have 19 million specimens of plants, animals, fungi, all sorts of different things, microbes that we preserve. They have things in them and interesting information and data associated with them that can be used to address aspects of climate change. They go way back to the fossil record, like millions of years, not just hundreds or thousands. And so what you can tell from the collections and also just ecology, all this stuff talking about the natural world requires different perspectives. And so there's you know, applied ecologists basic and, and collections people the way animals adapt to and plants adapt to the environment is thor henson's book about hurricane lewis plastic squid again just has a big effect on me because i read it last week they move they adapt or they perish and there might be another option in there as well but that can happen And if you think about it that's what we do too right if it gets too hot in a part of the city you either move or you adapt because you can get an air conditioner. Or you don't do very well and you well, you may go locally extinct by moving if you're a human. We don't often think of it just dying, but you you can die from it. But humans are going to adapt the same way. When when Roland's talking about uh, environmental justice and equitability, that applies to a global scale, right? Uh, climate change is going to affect less economically developed countries than more to economically developed. And that happens on a neighborhood-by-neighborhood basis, too. Poor people are not just in Bangladesh, they're in parts of Philadelphia, and they don't have air conditioners, or they have substandard housing or below a floodplain or whatever. And so moving, adapting and perishing is what we're kind of all faced with in that sense. So there's all sorts of information that can be used to figure out how have things changed in the past? How are they changing now? And what are the differences in that? And so you need knowledge about what the animals are doing, animals and plants are doing now. And you also need to have some verifiable uh, evidence of where they were before. And we have that. you know. We have on the floor in our museum, there's a, a bug that was collected at City Hall. It's an aquatic beetle. What it was doing at City Hall in, in 1900 when it was collected, I'm not sure. But we know it was there because we have some evidence of it. And so putting together those little bits and pieces of information can answer some of the questions that's necessary to figure out, hey, how things are changing now and how quickly and, and what might happen in the future. Climate change as we know it today is change in our Earth's overall temperature with massive and permanent ramifications. Although its consequences can be planet-threatening, scientists still believe there are things we can do on a personal level to help. Recycle and reuse things. Walk or use public transportation to get to work. Turn off your electronics when you're not using them. Eat less meat. While you're at it, eat more locally grown vegetables and foods, and last but not least, spread your knowledge and concerns about climate change with others. When it comes to climate change, the main takeaway is that it's real. And although we are part of the cause, we can also be part of the solution.
2: One area where the two science groups in the, in the academy come together is actually Rick's field, which is the study of algae. And that's not something people think a whole lot about. It's algae, it's come on a pond, what does it mean? And Rick can, can speak to this at much greater detail than I can, uh, the importance of understanding the presence or absence of particular species of algae, what that means in terms of the condition of the water, Really, the original work of Ruth Patrick was looking at diatoms, which are, are a microscopic uh, algae species. And diatoms in particular, because they have these glass shells, they last a long time. I know mean, their remnants will last a long time. And I think both sides of the academy have done this and done it together, have done core samples of sediment and other things and looked at how the distribution of algae or species have changed over time, over hundreds or thousands of years. And that gives us also a signal as to what's going on, either in terms of water quality or in terms of the temperature or whatever else it may be in the environment that's affecting it.
3: More and more, it's making the the science times because of uh, usually you make make news when you're about to hurt somebody, <laughs> or you're edible. And algae are kind of both so that there's every university in the country has some biofuels project where they're trying to grow algae in suboptimal water supplies or in habitats that are kind of harsh for it, like deserts, you know, out in shallow ponds to use the biomass for biofuel or to use specialty chemicals from them. You know, they make beta carotene. You can add it to animal food and uh, to chickens to make their yolks yellower and stuff on a less significant basis. And algae also are often the culprit in freshwater bodies where there's pollution and influx of uh, nutrients from maybe uh, too much agricultural chemicals or or waste from other places. And algae are pretty resilient, at least some of them are. And so they'll kind of tell you what you're putting in the water because algae will bloom and can take advantage of that if there's too much nitrogen or too much phosphate or something like that. And so you can look and see from the algae that are there how much is going on. And also sometimes they'll be the type of algae called blue-green algae, they're actually a type of bacteria that's photosynthetic, and they can produce toxins, and they shut down cities. You know, I think it was Erie, a city on Lake Erie. They had to shut down, and they produce toxins that you can't just boil away. They don't get deactivated by boiling. They stick around. And so that's why people had to drink bottled water there for quite a while. And I'd say Ruth Patrick was a real pioneer in this. She had a real vision for these little tiny things that you might just say, oh, you can't even see them in a glass of water if you have a a few billion of them in there. But she recognized that you need to know what they look like, what they are. And guess what? When certain species grow, it indicates you have polluted water or it indicates your water's healthy. And she basically pioneered that idea and, uh, and still use today.
2: Two doors down right now, there's somebody counting the number of algae species on a slide, probably on a contract we have with one of the state environmental protection agencies. Because that methodology of of using organisms to track uh, water quality is, as Rick says, it's it's fundamental still for most regulation now is is looking at either algae or insects or whatever the life forms may be. That was Dr. Patrick's real, I suppose, eureka moment was coming across with the idea that the more impacted a stream or river was, the less diverse the organisms were or that the certain organisms would would leave and others would come in. And that's going back to the 1940s or 50s when that was really being developed. But that use of a multidisciplinary whole system, look at a stream to determine how much pollution there was, was really work that, that started here with, with her
3: work. She worked as a volunteer first because, of course, as a young female, she could not be hired as a scientist. But then she she ended up changing the place.
2: <laughs> I sometimes said she was almost too far ahead of her time. I mean, she got her Ph.D. in the 30s. When there weren't really very many women that did that, there wasn't really a community of people for her to interact with. So she just had to kind of go it on her own and, you know, built a whole field of study around that.
3: I think one of the tricks was she grew up somewhat privileged, but maybe because of that or who knows why. She didn't seem to wait around for people to give her permission to do things. You know, she just she did them. I think, you know, if you wait for permission, you were not going to get much done. (laughs) Is
1: that the, the ethos of the academy?
3: Uh, Permission can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What is the ethos of the Academy? That's a good question, Roland. What do you think?
2: It's a complicated institution. We have a lot of different things going on all at once. And we always are, you know, Rick referred to the issue with silos. So we're always trying to figure out ways to break those down. We have collection science. We have other kinds of curatorial work environmental science going on. We have a great group of educators and public-facing folks who are working in the public-facing museum. So it's what's our tagline now? Be a force for nature. I think everybody here has that in some way or the other in their mind. And people stay here a really long time. You know, I'm going on 23 years now, Rick. I don't know what yours is. but A
3: couple more than that. Yeah,
2: yeah and we've got people who have been here 30, 40. One chemist just passed his 50th year. So there's a lot of loyalty to the idea that, that nature is important and the environment is important and so i think that's that's really what's kept this institution going through 200 years
3: yeah some of it's an attitude of even though we're, we're a pretty small institution in some ways we're older than the smithsonian for example but we're much smaller you know we could fit into one of their closets i would like to say or one of their warehouses but in a way we have this incredible history and collection of scientists and experts of, of various things including Outreach to the public and educating the public about that. And so nowadays, the question is sort of why not us? Yeah. You know, if somebody's going to study the effect of heat islands in Philadelphia, well, why not us? Who else is doing it? You know, and if some other giant consortium is doing it, we can be part of that. But if if it's an important question, we have the expertise and we have the knowledge and background to do it, why don't we do it? So we don't, we don't constrain ourselves in that way, but figure out what kind of tools do we have and what are the problems that we can solve? We
2: also have a great public face because we are one of the anchor institutions for culture in the city. We're on Logan Square near the Franklin Institute, as everyone reminds us, but somewhat smaller. But nonetheless, we have the ability we're doing things like mapping heat in the city to bring a public angle to that as well. So that's important as well, I think.
3: The, uh, the concept of a natural history museum and museums in general and scientists in general is really changing in many ways. So that, you know, it used to be if you wanted to study dinosaurs or plants or something, you study them in nature. And then it, in order to get a better handle, sometimes you need to look at the things that don't run away from you or are going to die on you in the springtime. And so you looked at specimens in museums, and you'd have to go there to see them. Or if if you really couldn't get there, they might ship them to you for a loan, you know. Now that data is kind of dispersed all over the internet, because we've taken pictures of things, we captured all the information on the labels and so forth attached to them, and sometimes digitized the field notebooks of the scientists who caught them or, or collected them. And also you have the name, which means you can go Google scholar everything and figure out all the publications in your that are not in the library they're on your desktop now and you, beyond that we have dna data the genetic material in the cells is actually preserved many times in all the collections we have biochemicals within the specimens themselves there be isotopes of chemicals in bird feathers that can tell you where they were foraging what they were eating and when because you know the date they were collected so that concept of an extended specimen and extended data Extended data sets is really kind of changing things. In this glorious world of the future, maybe uh, we'll have specimens, we'll have connected to ecological data sets that are long-term studies and present, maybe even modern day present-time monitoring, you know, with data cams and webs in lakes where you can tell what the temperature is in some lake right now and then study the organisms there. All that stuff is being networked and it's being made more powerful in order to answer questions, not just to be make a G Wiz isn't this cool? I will sit back and watch it. But what are the questions you want to ask? How can you solve a problem and learn more about something? And bringing all that data and information together is important. And that happens globally, but it happens within our institution as well. So it's an exciting, cool time to be approaching retirement. I'll tell you that.
2: Yeah. What's, what's changed as well is how museums relate to the public and to the audiences and things. And I think it, it's important what Rick was saying about the internet, as radical as that, that may be, It is. it has actually played a, a huge role in some of this. But it's also, museums traditionally have been defined as, if you look at Webster or whatever, their first thing is a building that has artifacts or a building that has things in it or a building that that collects things, but the building often is the first term in the definition. Most modern museums would reject that out of hand. You know, the building is not the is not what makes the museum. It's the people, it's the ideas, it's the it's the knowledge that's coming out of it. And it's its interaction with the public. The museum can exist anywhere. We do work in West Philly, we do work with the school systems, you know, our museum is anywhere we go. So we've been doing a lot of work in the last few years, particularly around inclusion and diversity. And what we call community science and environmental justice, which all play different parts in this. So uh, we we began this year a community learning division. We have a new vice president for that. And a lot of that work is about taking the kind of things that that Rick does or or the, the collections do or that my team does and connect it better with the people who actually live in the city and the, the, the groups that in the past haven't been very well connected to it
1: trying to like conceptualize what Rick said earlier in our conversation, but how can we better be better to our surrounding environment? What can we push for or think about more in terms of making our environment more equitable and really even just engaging in these conversations? Because I don't think that equity is, uh, I think we're talking about it more, but I still think that people aren't thinking about the environment as like an equity issue popularly.
3: Yeah, I think it's becoming more and more. I mean, Roland and I are exposed to it all the time, especially Roland's projects in the side of the house there. And we have uh, different initiatives that reach out to different parts of the city, sometimes about environmental problems that they've identified and would like some input and information about. And other things are just issues that come up. You know, there's a big, big issue in the news last year, I guess, about black birders in New York City. But there are Black birders all over the place, including here in Philadelphia. And we had a big uh, a Black Tie event at the Academy uh, for Black birders. And we had hundreds of people show up, and mostly African-American folks who were interested in birds.
2: You know, they're essential tools for birding. They're your binoculars, your spotting scope, your field guide. And if you're Black, you're going to need probably two or three forms of ID. You know, the edge of day, as light is fading, those crepuscular hours are the times when
3: many birds come to life. It's such a beautiful time to bird, but if you're a black birder and you're going to bird at night, you better be careful because you might be perceived as being up to no good.
2: There are questions generally about access to nature and what that means for different groups and why some groups relate to nature or seem to relate to nature differently than others and what allows us to, to get people better connected if they aren't already or recognizing that many people are already better connected to nature than we understand, but we just don't we in the cocoon don't always realize it so i think the black birder movement wasn't something we started it was something we learned about and and something we should have learned about much sooner
1: anything that you do in the in the realm of birding is birding if you have a bird feeder in the backyard that's birding um you don't have to have binoculars to be considered a birder Uh, so just know that you going outside is good enough
2: one of the interesting, from from our, our side of the house in terms of water, so if we think about the Delaware River that runs through the city of Philadelphia, most people don't go near it. I mean, it's it's had a twisted history in, in terms of pollution and things, but a good deal of the Delaware River and certainly a good deal of the Delaware Basin is now considered uh, usable for swimming and fishing and other kinds of recreational work, recreational activities. The only area that isn't is sort of the 20-some mile stretch that runs along Philadelphia and Camden and Wilmington because of issues with sewage treatment and things like that over the years that you still have these issues with pollution of the river. So a big question right now is how do we build access to nature for people, whether it's whether it's the stream that runs through their neighborhood or the river that runs through their city, or how do we just make sh- more open space and more green space available? And I know that's something that's well recognized in Philadelphia, but we haven't quite solved it yet, but it, it definitely is the driver for a lot of thinking right now.
3: I'll give you one other example too of something that I've been involved with recently, and I'll use an anecdote from it. So I, in, in a room at the academy, I, I can open a folder and inside is a plant, that's a dead plant specimen, and you might say, OK, it's an interesting uh, tobacco plant or it's a lily. You wouldn't think, well, what, is, what does that have to do with diversity, equity, inclusion and all the things that society has been paying a lot of attention to lately? Well, it turns out the plant was collected from an area where the Native Americans 200 years ago used it for treating wounds or for food. And nowadays, now we have the specimen in the museum. What is the connection? Well, the, the Native Americans are still there. The plants are still there their uses are still there. They don't know that we have this specimen, perhaps. Actually, the one I'm thinking of, there were several of them collected by Lewis and Clark uh, on their expedition. And we have started partnering with people who are uh, interested in this from the legal perspectives and cultural anthropological perspectives. And there are ways to connect to Native American communities now to say, look, we have these specimens. They might be of interest to you. Uh, they might be of interest to you from the standpoint of cultural uses, history, of uh, where they were, and maybe even from the standpoint of bi- modern biology, you might want to know something about ethnobiology of plants, where they come from, what they're used for, and what's what their potential use is in the future, is something I, I never would have thought of a couple of years ago. But because of my exposure to a few people who are interested in this, I thought, you know, actually, we have 19 million specimens. Many of them were collected from lands owned by and run by indigenous people 100 to 200 years ago or even if they're collected now, the lands were there a lot, that long ago. What are the connections between those people? So, uh, those things are intertwined, they're not completely divorced. This little plant on a page is dead and just sitting there kind of instantly. <laughs> it's, it has a big story behind it and a lot of stories to tell.
2: Yeah. When you're a 200 year old museum, particularly a natural history museum that has been connected to the movement of, of empires around the world, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of baggage there. And I think we do have to acknowledge these issues and work to correct them, and certainly to make the modern identity of the museum something different.
1: I'm just, I'm continually impressed by the work that's being done by y'all. You put me a little bit more at ease, so I appreciate that very much. Thanks for hanging out. People
2: don't (laughs) often tell us that. That's good. That's, you know, usually it's like, why are you so (laughs) depressed? Yeah, I had a great time.
0: Pop the question was researched and hosted by Dr. Melinda Lewis. Our theme music and episodes are produced by Brian cantoric with additional audio production by Noah Levine. All of this was done under the directorship of Erica Levy Zellinger, the deanship of Dr. Paula Morans Cohen, and the Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University. I know it's
3: important. I do, I honestly do. What are we talking about? Practice? What are we talking about?